You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Mindy. And Carl. And this is the Earn and Invest podcast. I have a confession to make. We have been spending. Spending like it has been going out of style for the last two years. I'm talking new cars, house remodels, trips to Europe. Spending, dare I say, double that of previous years. So much, in fact, that I refuse to keep track of it. The 4% rule has gone out the window. Is my life better for it? Me, personally? Probably not. But the lives of people I love probably is. You see, I don't give a lick about money at least above and beyond the necessities. Yet, I have spent the last few decades fearfully accumulating it. Does it cause me anxiety spending so willy-nilly? Of course it does. But it turns out that anxiety is no more or less than the anxiety I felt while accumulating it. Spending too much or too little, earning, saving, investing, or speculating, safe withdrawal rate, sequence of returns, YOLO, and FOMO, they're all just words, attitudes, What I'm truly looking for is something much simpler, financial peace. Minnie and Carl Jensen are responsible for some of our favorite financial independence content, including the 1500 Days to Freedom blog, the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, the Mile High Five podcast, and a couple of real estate books. Their newest project is the Mindy on Money podcast. Carl and Mindy, welcome to Earn and Invest. Mindy and recent podcast episode, you titled it, Should I Be Thoughtfully Reckless? What did you mean by that? Ooh, should we be thoughtfully reckless? Reckless with your spending is against everything in the FI community. So you should embrace it, Jordan, with your trips to Europe and your spending so much that you're not even tracking anymore. Oh my goodness, turn in your FI card right now. The internet retirement police are going to come and snatch you right up, take you straight to jail. But thoughtfully reckless is kind of encompassing your spending habits right now. You are spending without thinking about how much it costs because you can afford it, because you have been so what did you say? Fearfully accumulating money for so long. And to quote you, you don't give a lick about money because you have enough. You have more than enough. I am assuming I haven't peeked into your bank accounts lately, but I am assuming that you have your fine number and then more so and more so and more so. And the fact that you are able to spend without tracking it means that you have more than you'll need. So you can be thoughtfully reckless. You're not buying a Lamborghini for every day of the week because that's not something you value, but you're going on a trip to 
Europe, presumably with your family or at least people you know and like to spend time with, and you're not looking at how much it's costing. And that's what we are trying to do now is not obsess over the cost of strawberries at the grocery store and not obsess over, you know, hey, we're going to, we recently went to Hawaii and you can go to Hawaii and spend very little money and stay in a shack and do nothing. Or you can spend more and stay in a place that's close to the beach and go on a helicopter tour, which is something we have never done in our lives. And we went zip lining and we did all these super fun things. And it was a far more robust vacation that didn't dent our net worth. And it was thoughtfully reckless because we didn't do stupid things that we didn't have any interest in, but it was reckless in that we didn't really pay attention to the price tag either. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And and Carla, you know, I'm thinking a lot about your podcast. I've listened to the first bunch of episodes and they're they're really great and thoughtful. And one thing that I realize is to be thoughtfully reckless today means that we have a prior orientation to money that wasn't thoughtfully reckless. So Carl, tell me about your orientation to money growing up and kind of what orientation you brought into your marriage as you guys first met. (laughs) Oh, Jordan, that's such a good question. And I'm curious, I'm going to throw something back at you after I answer it. But growing up and up until fairly recently, my orientation with money was to be super frugal, to save money, to treasure it and not spend it recklessly at all. The other thing that went along with that is if there was something I could do, even if I hated it, like I hate working on cars, Jordan, but I know how to do it. I can change brakes. I've rebuilt an engine, but I can't stand it. But my thought process was always, if I can do it, then I should not pay someone else to do it because it's silly. That would be a waste of money. I can do the brake job or whatever. And Mindy's probably heard lots of profanities coming through the wall of the garage when I when I did the last break job, because it was an unpleasant experience. So that was my orientation before just the goal was money and to be as efficient and optimize it as much as possible. The goal was not to enjoy it. And I'm curious, the question I was going to throw back at you is I think a lot of us in the five community community do this. We're super frugal. And then we end up at a place, a very great place. I'm so thankful and so privileged to be here, but we end up at this place where we have much more and then we can pivot and change and spend a little bit more if we want to, but it's not easy. So I wonder if the better solution would be to have been a little bit more thoughtful about the whole thing and the relationship with money before we hit that turning point. You know, it's funny because I think a lot about my own experience and I, I definitely, I think I'm an outlier. The thing is, I never really cared about money except that I was anxious about having enough. But I don't know if I ever really enjoyed spending money in the first place. So I got all of the negative and none of the positive. And as I get older, I can regale in some spending. Like when we, you know, we went to Portugal and we stayed at a much nicer Airbnb than maybe we would have 10 years ago. And I can say, ah, this kind of feels like luxury, but it doesn't really relate me personally to my lasting sense of happiness. So one thing I realized is all I have about money is negative or anxiety thoughts because it never really lent itself to these positive good thoughts. 
I wonder, Mindy, how that tracks with you. So Carl comes in with kind of the scarcity mindset and this sense of, I don't want to spend money. You guys meet, obviously you decide to get married. And at some point you're really talking about your money habits. How did your dealing with money meld with his? Were you on the same page? As you're talking, I'm like, Jordan, we're the same person. (laughs) Carl and I had slightly different upbringings, but we have the same thoughts about money. What I'm laughing at is you saying, oh, and then you talked about money. Before we got married, we never talked about money. We never discussed it. We didn't discuss our debt load. We didn't discuss finances. We didn't discuss all the things that you're supposed to discuss about money before you betroth yourself to this person for the rest of your life. But there were also what we refer to as context clues about how we handled our finances. Carl's going to love this one. He used a coupon on our first date. (laughs) Nice. Very nice. (laughs) Jordan might know the place. Actually, it was Russell's Barbecue, which is a Chicagoland institution, or at least it was when we were dating. So you were impressed, Mindy, as he pulled out his coupon to pay for it. I actually was. I was like, oh, cool. He didn't even try to hide it? Like he didn't wait till you went to the bathroom or something? No, he didn't even try to hide it. And I'm glad because that is a big clue. I, you you could also tell like he didn't drive a super fancy car. He, when I first met him, I thought he lived with his parents because all the lights were off in the house, except for one over the sink. And I thought like everybody had gone to bed because my parents go to bed super early. So I just thought we were at his parents' house. And then later he's like, no, I live by myself. I'm like, why are all the lights off? And I don't like wasting electricity. (laughs) So, Kyle, tell me, like, at the beginning of your relationship or as you guys were getting closer to this, hey, let's get married, this thing's going to work out. Did you have any kind of knockdown, drag out money fights? The crazy thing is we certainly fight about stuff, but I don't think it's ever about money, really, because we're we're so fortunate and that we're on the same page as far as that goes. And what I always tell people is I think that's it's super important, obviously, but I think it's even more important. Than people think because people always say, oh, the, the number one reason for divorce is money problems. But I think it's not really about money. It's about the values you have and what money means to you, what you're going to do with it and what you think the purpose of it is. But yeah, Jordan, not to get too far away from your question, we really didn't fight about money. We were pretty much on the same page as far as that with everything. I mean, not on the same page with everything with life, but for money. We were, and I think that's probably one of the greatest reasons why we have such a good marriage now. Twenty, We just had our 22-year anniversary, and everything's going great. Mindy, as Carl mentioned, right, we're really not talking about money per se. We're talking about a melding of values, maybe a concept of enough, and maybe now we're also starting to talk about this concept of too much. I was interested, Mindy, this morning you emailed me a copy of Bill Bangan's article from the 1990s about the 4% rule. Just wondering why kind of did you feel the urge to send me that article this morning? How did you think it was going to play into the conversation? Well, anytime I talk about early retirement and financial independence, that article seems to pop up. And that particular article, I have had a very difficult time finding online. It's from like the Journal of Financial Planning from October of 1994 or something like that. So it's been a minute since it's been published. And I recently 
on an episode of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, invited people to email me if they'd like a copy of it because it's so difficult to find. And my inbox has been absolutely flooded with requests for people from people for that article. So I thought we would be talking about it. And then I shared it with you so you could link it in the show notes if it came up during the conversation. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of debate about the 4% rule. And I'm sure you've spoken to people who are like, oh, no, it should be the 3.5% rule <laughs> since it was written so long ago. 3.25, maybe even 3%. I would just like to speak up on Bill Bengen's behalf and say he's a freaking rocket scientist <laughs> turned financial planner. He didn't just decide, you know what? I think 4% is the right way to go. He did research because he's a nerd. And then he did more research and more research. And that article is not a one-page article. I don't know if you flip through it. I think it's like 12 or 14 pages long. There's graphs. There's numbers galore. For all the nerds that are listening, this is a really, really, really in-depth article that kind of cements that he knows what he's talking about. And it's a pretty good way to come to your phi number. In our recent episode called Enough, I referenced that as well. And I, I really think that if you're on the path to financial independence and you're trying to figure out how much is enough, that's a really good rule of thumb, not rule set in stone, to help you kind of figure out your number. But there's so many people who are like, they they su suffer from one more year syndrome. Ahem. <laughs> <laughs> nods over towards Carl as she says that. Yeah. And uh, looking right at Jordan when I do. <clears throat> That's true. No, you know, I still make money. I, I, I still make money. No question about it. I tend to do work that I really like. I can say that I don't do any work that I dislike anymore. In fact, my time is completely my own. But Carl brings up kind of an important point. Let's say we all double down and say Bill Bangan was right, 4% or 4.01 or 4.1, whatever whatever the actual original number was from both Bangan and the Trinity City. Let's say we all agree on that number. Does that help us? I mean, yes, we can twiddle our thumbs and, and say, is it 3.5 or 4.2? But it seems to me like that's the beginning of the story and not the end of the story. In other words, we don't just accept that number, move on, and everyone's happy and hunky-dory and that's it. Is that enough? Is it enough to look at the number and all of us agree and say, okay, this is how I'm going to live my life? The more I live in the FI space, the more I hate the 4% rule and that number. And the reason I hate it, yeah, Mindy is looking at me like I'm crazy now for people, <laughs> people watching on YouTube. Well, for one thing, the term rule was never in his original article. It was supposed to be a loose guideline. So flexibility is really really the key to it. If the market takes a 50% drop the day after you retire, hey, guess what? That's also probably the best day to go back to work. You can do that. But that's not the reason why I dislike it. The reason why I dislike it is we're putting so much trust and we're putting so much focus on something that is completely almost 100% out of our control. We have no idea what this stock market thing that we're depending on is going to do. We have no clue. It could be great. It could be horrible. So I think we should focus on the things we can control. And that's our, our skills and our community and it, everything we've built up over that period of time. That's what we should focus on. We shouldn't focus on returns on some stock market that we have absolutely no control over. Mindy, I want to flip the conversation because a lot of what we're talking about is 
how much can we spend and how that relates to the 4% rule. But then there's the other side that we calculate the 4% rule and then most of us still underspend. So we might agree that 4% is the right number, but then we live our lives like it's 3.5 or 3.0 or God forbid 2.5 or 2.0, which a lot of, of people do. You guys many, many months ago were on Ramit Sethi's podcast. And before I even heard the podcast, a lot of people in the community are like, wow, he was hard on them. They're like, this, there was a little bit of a backlash. Talk about that episode and specifically what he pretty much tried to lead you to when it came to your spending. Well, what he tried to lead us to was his, I mean, his brand is, I will teach you to be rich. I will teach you how to live a rich life. And to be clear, I hold no ill feelings towards him. I was on his show purposefully. I reached out to him. I said, hey, I'd like to be on your show with my husband because we don't spend money. We feel like we are cheap. And that was the first question he asked us. Do you feel like you're cheap? I'm like, whoa, I didn't <laughs> think we were going to just jump right into it, but I guess we are. That should have um, been my first question. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think that he has an agenda, but that's valid because it's his show. He was harsh because he's trying to get us to change our way of thinking. And he's trying to lead us into discovering what our rich life would be. And I think we got a lot out of the episode. We're still learning. It's not like the next day we're like, woohoo, now everything's solved. Because it's a lifetime of money habits and mental state about money that you are now changing. And we were save, 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 spend because you have to buy groceries. You can't just steal them. Not that we would, but like you spend as little as possible. You shop the sales. You, you know, you don't think about what your rich life would be. And, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I didn't read his book because I thought it was just going to be, oh, here's how you invest. Well, I already know that's so why I don't need this. And it's it's more about how to incorporate things that will make your life better, things that will make your life, for a cheesy phrase, worth living and you know, enrich your life as opposed to, you know, just plodding through trying to save as much money as you can for the future. So, Carl, in a moment, I, I want to discuss, I, I have an issue with both Ramit, and it's the same issue I have with Bill Perkins' Die With Zero. But before I get to that, tell me about the impact of being on Ramit's show. How did that change your either outlook or your habits after the focus was kind of on spending? We've, we've let the purse strings, we've loosened the purse strings a little bit. We've done some money experiments. The biggest one is perhaps buying a cruise for my family. My family does not have the financial wherewithal that we do. And my mom's dream has always been to go on an Alaskan cruise. So we bought a cruise not only for my mom, but for but for my siblings and their partners. We haven't done the cruise yet, but we have purchased it. So experiments like that, we, we've also hired a house cleaner, which was another experiment. And I think both these things are going to turn out well, like I was alluded to before, hiring the house cleaner was difficult because we can clean our own house. Why are we hiring someone to do this? 
But by taking away something we don't want to do, we can add more of the things that we do want to do. One thing I'll say quickly is that I expected Ramit to come out to come up with some big things like we could spend money on or some hacks to really spend money and be happy. But I would say the things that might be most important are the things that improve your day-to-day life. You can spend money on a big vacation, but that's a one-time thing. And you're going to have that memory dividend, as Bill Perkins would say. And that's great. But the cruise is one and done where if you can find ways to eliminate things you don't like in your daily life, that allows you to do more of what you really want to do. And I think that stuff maybe has more value than anything that we took away from Ramit's show. So, Mindy, this is my problem with both Ramit and and Bill Perkins. I just don't know what spending money has to do with happiness at all. Like the further I go, the more I realize that accumulating lots of money didn't make me happy. And now over the last few years, I've been doing the exact opposite experiment of spending lots of money. And that doesn't necessarily move the bar one way or another. Like a lot of what makes me happy is kind of these deep internal things, these things that either the people I'm involved with or the things that I deeply want to do. I always have this problem with both of those platforms because I think it puts way too much emphasis on money and I just don't think it relates to happiness that much. So you just said the things that you the things that make you happier, the things that you want to do. What things do you want to do? Like have you ever sat down and said these are the things that make me happy? And I keep going back to the section of playing with fire where Scott sits Taylor down and says, can you make a list of your top 10 things? And she's like, good chocolate and, you know, having a great bottle of wine and, you know, playing with my daughter and, you know, things like this. I know you've got two kids. Spending time with them is great. But as they get older, you know, they have less time for dad, which is, you know, totally fine. We're in the same boat. We have uh, similar aged kids. But what is something that truly brings you joy and being able to do that without any regard for money or the cost of it is I think where they are heading with with Ramit it isn't so much spend 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 it's figure out what makes you happy and like find a way to bring that into your life as opposed to, you know, like spending, like his, his example, he loves travel. He loves luxurious travel. He doesn't give a frog's fat butt about his car. So he drives a car from like 25 years ago that gets him from A to B and that's all he cares about. But he spends what gives me heart palpitations on a night in a hotel that is not something that I want. I We used to stay in a step up from Motel 6. And now we stay in more like Hyatt and Marriott. And like, I consider those nice hotels, but those are like medium nice hotels. I don't want to stay in thousand dollar a night hotels. That makes me uncomfortable. I want to carry my luggage to my room. I don't need somebody to carry my luggage to my room. That just makes me feel weird. So what is it that you like to do? I know you like to talk. I know you like to hang out. If you had a 40, 50, 60 hour a week doctor job, could you go do all of these camp fives and economies and go to FinCon and do all this stuff? No. So you've taken away your obligations so that you can spend more time doing what you want to do. It doesn't mean that you're spending a ton of money doing it. 
Jordan, I have a quick follow-up. I had the exact same takeaway from the Remeet episode. The thing I thought of was, what could we buy that would increase our happiness? And A house cleaner. Yeah, I, I thought of well, you kind of hit on something there. I thought a long a lot about it. Like we could have we could probably live almost anywhere we wanted. We could have a vacation house. We could go out and buy a Lamborghini if we wanted to. So we could have all these things, but I knew that they wouldn't make me any happier. One of my core values, and I think it's the same with you, Jordan. I know in your book, you said you're a communicator, and I am too. I really like the relationships I have with my friends. So how could I elevate experiences around people? So when we travel, oftentimes we don't travel to see a place. We travel to to a cool place, but because we have friends there, and that's why why we went to Hawaii. We had friends on the Big Island. Another example is at the Economy Conference that's coming up. I personally paid for a place to have the opening party and a set amount of drinks for people. Let's not get crazy now. I know this crowd... This crowd can party, so there won't be unlimited drinks. But I like creating environments to have good experiences with people. And that's one of my core values. And uh, fortunately, that doesn't have to cost a lot of money. The economy one will, but just inviting people over for a barbecue or to maybe watch the Super Bowl. Again, it's not about the Super Bowl. It's about having friends over and spending times with them. So, yeah, Jordan, I completely agree with you. If there was something I could throw money at to... To have a good time, I would, but there just aren't so many of those experiences. And uh, I've experimented, so we we have had the fancy car and done some crazy things. And uh, they're fine, but they're a one and done. I don't need to do them again, but I'm glad I did them because now I'll never have to regret not doing them. We are talking with Mindy and Carl Jensen. They are responsible for some of our favorite financial independence content. And we are talking about enough and being thoughtfully reckless when it comes to spending. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. This episode is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, if you're like me, you thought at one point in your life that having enough money would solve all of your problems. And guess what? It didn't for me, and it probably isn't for you. But you know what helps quite a bit? Therapy. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It definitely did for me, and when I used BetterHelp, I found that I was learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowered me to be the best version of myself, 
And it's not for just those people who've experienced major trauma. You might be like me. Maybe you got to the point where financially you were successful and yet you still found that life's problems hadn't been all solved. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash E-A-R-N. We are back with Mindy and Carl Jensen. They are the creators of the 1500 Days to Freedom blog, as well as hosts slash co-hosts of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, the Mile High Fi podcast. The newest project is the Mindy on Money podcast. We were talking about those things we do that are important to us, that fill us up, that bring us joy, whether they're related to money or not. Mindy, you asked me, like, what are the things I like to do? And certainly, you know, I was thinking about it. I love podcasting. I love exercising. I love reading. I'm going to discount the things that have to do with other people. I mean, I love spending time with my family and my community, but I'm just talking about kind of the things. I love writing. And so I realized these things that light me up and give me joy, I actually was doing them before I was financially independent. I was doing them before I stopped working. The only difference is I convinced myself that I needed so much money that I spent a huge amount of time working and pushed all those things to the side. So an interesting thought experiment for me is what if at the beginning of my career, I had created that career in such a way that I could do things like hospice, which I now love, and maybe do them at slightly less hours per week, which would have allowed me more time to do those other things I like doing. And I wonder if I would have felt so stressed to get to financial independence and leave my job. It's a big question for me. Part of it is that it took me this long to be thoughtful about what was important to me. And I always thought that I had to be like past that work stage to do those things. Whereas now I realize I could have integrated them into my life much earlier. And I think that's a that's been a big epiphany for me as I contemplate my spending and how it's affected or impacted my life is I think I waited too long to do the things I wanted to do. I think that's really important to acknowledge. And, you know, if we can reach people on the beginning of their FI journey, really sit down and think about what it is that you want out of this life. Like you said, if I could have incorporated this into my job earlier, maybe I wouldn't have been so frantic to get to it. I have had jobs that I absolutely hated. I would wake up in the morning and you're like, you're happy. And then you're like, oh crap, I got to go to work today. <laughs> I'm not like that now. I still work. I work at Bigger Pockets. I host their money podcast. And I get up and I'm like, why do I get to go to work today? Um, I used to feel guilty when the girls would be sitting at the breakfast table fighting and I'm getting ready to walk out the door and Carl's refereeing a fight. And I'm like, See ya. I'm going to go have fun. <laughs> Sorry, you're stuck at home with the girls who are so angry at each other today. And it's having a job that you love truly does change the way that you think about everything. I mean, you're spending how much of your time at your job if you get up in the morning and think, oh, I can't believe I have to go to work again. That's awful. So, Think about what it is that you want out of your life. Think about what it is you want out of your job. It doesn't have to be this horrible thing. We're financially independent and I still work because I like it. So 
you know, really living this this journey as an enjoyable experience instead of what did you call it? A death march to fi is a better way to do it. Yeah, the whole point of financial independence is happiness. So it's pretty silly to punt happiness until some future date just to reach five when that's the whole goal in the first place. So we've been talking about, you know, recklessly or thoughtfully reckless spending. We've been talking about what enough looks like. And it hits me that a lot of us get to the point where we have, quote, un, quote enough money, and yet it doesn't necessarily feel safe. And in fact, that leads to things like the one more year syndrome. It leads us to be overly frugal, et cetera. So I want to do a thought experiment here. Let's say I had my magic wand and I wave it. And once I wave my magic wand, Carl, Mindy, you could never make another dollar again. How would you feel, Mindy? How would you feel if all of a sudden I said, no matter what happens in the future, you can never make another dollar again? You can still work. You can still do the things you love, uh, but none of it's going to make money. Except for, I assume, like stock market returns. Correct. Except except for your investments. All of those things can keep on bringing in money the way they are, but you cannot go be employed and have someone pay you for the work you do anymore. And our current financial situation is the same. Yep. How would you feel? No pressure whatsoever. I would almost do my job for free anyway. Okay. Carl, how would you feel? He doesn't make any money. Well, I know you don't make any money, but what if you couldn't make money ever again? Yeah, I'd feel great. And I'd probably continue to do the same things I do now. I enjoy writing. I never thought the blog would make any money. It has, but it was never my expectation. I would still do the podcast because, well, our podcast, we pay to do it. Actually, we're <laughs> we're, we're losing money. But, but what it does is it creates friendships. People hear about us. We're going to meet with someone tonight who has listened to the podcast and we have a potluck. So yeah, Jordan, I would feel just fine about our financial situation and I wouldn't change anything about our lives either. But I also need to caveat, we have more than we will ever need. We- and you you feel comfortable and safe with that. No like fears I'm going to run out. No fears that we calculated 4%, but maybe it should be 35 or 3.2%. You are willing to sit here and I, I think it's wonderful, but you're willing to sit here and say, I am comfortable. We calculated the 4% based on spending a while ago. We've blown through that. But based on that spending, which we could easily get back to, we have four times our 4% rule. So we we could be at the 1% rule and still be okay. Yes, but to answer your question, I feel comfortable with the amount of money that we have. I feel... Honestly, I don't feel like we'll be able to spend it all before we die. Which is the reality, right? Because most people most people who have a portfolio, studies show most people who have a portfolio and have been paying attention to that portfolio for decades, almost all those people with die, die with extra money. I mean, almost none of those people die broke. But Carl, it's an interesting idea because as we talk about this, to me, forget numbers, forget percentages. To me, being able to stand on that hill and say, if I never made another cent again, I would feel totally comfortable, that defines enough for me. That's what enough money looks like. Yeah. I'm so thankful to be able to say that too, because most people have, or I'll back up a second. I don't say most people, but many people in this community have much more than they need. And then they, they move the goalposts and make excuses for why they need more or why they need to stay at work another year. 
and I'm not trying to throw them under the the fly bus. If they really love their job and they they would do it for free, like we're doing right now, then more power to them. They have found something awesome in their lives. But if you can truly say that, like how how fortunate are we that we think we have enough and we don't need to make another dollar? And I'm so thankful. So I think there's a lot of people who get there, but m- many fewer people who are comfortable with it and can actually say that they have enough and don't need to make another dollar. Money is addictive, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. And in fact, it leads to the the question of the part of the reason why money is addictive is because it's not usually about enough money. It's about enough everything else, which of course then leads us to the whole past trauma, right? So I think we get addicted because generational trauma leads us to really question what scarcity is and abundance and those kind of things. But then the other side of that is purpose. And so I'm wondering, Mindy, I think a lot of people end up in this money addiction because of an inability to face or work on purpose. So what does purpose look like to you in what I'd almost call a post-money era for you guys? I love talking about money. I love talking about financial independence. I love talking about being happy in your choices and being happy with your job and your life. And my purpose now is to continue to share this concept with people, to share with people what you can do after you reach financial independence. I think there's a big hole in the content that the financial independence community is putting out there. There's a lot of getting up to financial independence, but there's almost nothing about what happens afterwards. So that's what the the Mindy and Carl on Money podcast is all about, is talking about what happens after you reach financial independence. You get money out of the way and you can live your best life. Carl, why is there this gap? Why don't people talk about what happens afterwards? There's probably a couple of reasons. One is because they have the wrong goal. All these people or a lot of folks have that the goal is money. I need to get to a certain amount. And that really shouldn't be it. As important as money is, the goal should be living a good and meaningful life that's close to your values. But <laughs> I think the other reason is that's also a much more difficult question. How many people do you think go to a job that they truly enjoy that they would do for free? I don't think many people can say that they have that. I think it's pretty rare. But if you can't say that, that's something awesome. So I think a lot of people just don't know what their true purpose is. And that, that's one of the things I loved about your book and what set it apart from so many other books is that you go into defining your identity. So I guess the bottom line there, Jordan, is a lot of people don't really know what their true identity or calling is and how awesome is it when you can actually figure that out. So Mindy, what should we be telling the newbies besides go listen to the Mindy and Carl on Money Show? (laughs) What do you think is the thing, like, if we could distill it down, what piece of advice should we be giving these people who just found financial independence? They are totally excited. They are figuring out how to frugalize their life, to save more money, to invest. They're doing all the right things. What can we tell them maybe to ease some of this difficult transition? So there's several things that are all tied for first place. Um, Number one is work on what you value. 
And if you are single, that's going to be like your own values. If you're married or have a long-term partner, that's going to be more of a shared values kind of thing. If you have, just because you have discovered financial independence doesn't mean that your partner's on board. So having conversations and trying to come to a middle ground, if they're not willing to come all the way to where you are, is a really good first step, figuring out what you value and why you're doing this. It isn't just to quit your job. If you're doing this to quit your job, just go find another job. If you're doing this to live your best life and, you know, open up all these options that are available to you, that's really why you should be pursuing this. Um, And maybe that includes staying at a job that you truly love that just doesn't pay you a lot. Or maybe it includes volunteer work that you wouldn't be able to do when you're working 40, 60, 80 hours a week. Figuring out how much you really need is equally important. So tied for number one, because that gives you a goal, figuring out where you're at now and where you need to be or where you're at now and where you need to be or where you're at now and where you need to be. Like a lot of people on this journey are already like on the journey. They just didn't know it. I mean, we were halfway to our fine number when we discovered financial independence and the concept of it. We were just saving for something. We didn't know what we were saving. Oh, and figuring out, like figuring out what's important to you and, and, you know, getting your expenses low if they are outsized, keeping in all of the things that are important to you and getting rid of the things that like you're doing, but you don't really know why. And learning how to spend on the things that do bring you joy and that you do value. Carl, advice for newbies. The money part is super important, but it's also, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it is pretty simple. It's index funds and living below your means and all that. We've all heard those stories a million times before. So figure out your money, do the right things, but then put it off to the side and then focus on your life. Well, I wanted to thank you guys both for coming on the show today. You know, it reminds me of this concept of the difference between why and how. I think a lot of us got to financial independence because we didn't know the how. And the problem with that is when you focus so much on the how, you eventually have to then go back and figure out the why. And that's why I picked up on this term, thoughtfully reckless. The idea of being thoughtfully reckless actually is this idea that there is an overabundance. And because there's an overabundance, you can actually do things you normally wouldn't do. You can be a little reckless because there's an abundance. But maybe the reason there's an abundance is because we got so stuck on how that we never thought about the why first. And so instead of being thoughtfully reckless, maybe we could just start with the thoughtful and then we would never have to get to the reckless point. So I want to end this episode the way we end every episode is by asking you what is up next and where people can find you. First, Mindy, talk us about the talk to us about the Mindy on Money. And maybe I should put Carl's name in Mindy and Carl on Money Podcast. The Mindy and Carl on Money Podcast is going to we've been laying the groundwork of a bit of our backstory. Of course, we had to talk about that Ramit episode. And some of the comments that we got from that episode. But now we're starting to dive into 
thoughts that we've had, discussions that we've had, and we're going to introduce interviews with people who are already retired and how their life is going after they've reached financial independence, after they have stopped working, asking them things that that we keep getting, questions we keep getting over and over. What are you doing for health insurance? The number one question we get. How does life differ from what you thought it was going to be and how it actually is now that you've quit your job and have all this time in the world? Uh, spoiler, he doesn't have any time. He fills up every <laughs> single minute of every single day with so much stuff. And I think that we are uniquely qualified to have this conversation because Carl is retired and has been for how many years? Uh, almost seven. Almost seven years. And I'm still working at a job that I love. So we're coming at this from like the two different positions of financial independence. Either you're totally retired or you're still working. So that's what we're going to do with the show. I was excited to hear you answer lots of these scintillating questions like what is enough talking about banging and the safe withdrawal rate. And another scintillating question you answered, which I suggest to everyone go listen to the episode is what is the deal with jail Collins, but, but you can, <laughs> you can find out by going to listen to that interview, Carl, if people want to know more, ask you questions or get tied into the podcast, what is the best way for them to reach out? Uh, they can see the podcast at MindyOnMoney.com. I almost said Mindy and Carl. No, I'm sorry. It's MindyOnMoney.com or my blog is 1500days.com. And I also have another podcast called Mile High Fi, which is a little bit different than those other two things. Mindy and Carl Jensen, thank you so much for being on Earn and Invest today. Thank you, Doc, for having us. We always enjoy talking to you. Thank you, Jordan. I'm so thankful to be able to call you a friend. See you in Cincinnati. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Okay, I'm going to do something near impossible. In this short five-minute section, I am going to solve the issue of enoughness and purpose. I come across this all the time in my coaching practice, in this podcast, in my book writing, and we're going to tackle it right now. So let's go. I got an email recently from a listener and she writes, I very much relate to your writing and this focus on purpose. I'm turning 58 in July and lost my parents by the time I was 30. Like you, I threw myself into working and saving for the last 25 years. I've been the sole breadwinner for my family of five over the last 10 years. Between my never-spent inheritance, my husband working until our almost 15-year-old twins were born, and my executive-level career, we are financially independent. With one kid graduating from college soon, and two in high school, and a growing distaste for corporate America, for the first time I'm truly considering a shift in career, one where I can earn a bit, get some health benefits, and give to others, I am trying therapy to finally work through never enough. I love this email, because it really speaks to what really is at the core of what I'm talking about, enoughness and purpose. And I think to figure these things out, we actually have to also touch on happiness. So here's what I talk about in my new book. 
I believe happiness is made up of meaning and purpose. Two things, meaning and purpose. Meaning is how we cognitively think about our past. It's the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Were we the heroes of the story? Did we persist through difficult struggles? Or were we the victims who lost all control or agency? Happiness is really not possible if you see yourself as a victim or someone who lacks agency. The happiest people I know, it isn't that they didn't go through difficult things. A lot of them did. But they see themselves as the hero of that story, the person who persisted. If you can't get past meaning, it's really difficult to get to purpose. Because where meaning has to do with our past, purpose is all about our present and future. Meaning is about cognitively thinking about things. Purpose is about action and doing. Happy people tend to feel very purposeful in their daily activities and what they plan for the future. But here's the problem. If you can't resolve some of your issues of meaning, if you feel like you're a victim of the past, then it's really hard to find purpose and enoughness in your present and your future because on some level, you see yourself as a victim of that past. And so it's really hard not to see yourself becoming a victim of the present and future. So what happens? There are a lot of people who try to skip this meaning part and try to get to happiness through purpose, and they get stuck on enough. Because they skip the meaning part, they go pursue purpose, and they find things they like to do, and they enjoy them for a little bit of time, but eventually they get restless and uncertain, and it's not giving them that dopamine hit they were originally getting when they started pursuing this in the first place. And the reason why is they're trying to pursue purpose to fulfill a sense of enough, but they're never going to feel enough. Enoughness is difficult for them to find, because they haven't tackled meaning yet, they don't realize that they are enough already. Let me repeat that. What I try to do in my podcast, what I try to do with my books, what I try to do with my coaching is to convince you that you are already enough. Because when you look at the stories of your life and you rewrite those narratives, you'll see yourself as the person who persisted through trauma and pain and difficulty and came out a smarter, wiser person, a person who could pursue relationships and financial independence and could build a life that others would envy, you are already enough. You are not going to fill your hole of enoughness by pursuing purpose. You do that by having a better understanding of meaning. Once you do that, once you see yourself as a hero of your own past, once you rewrite those narratives and tell yourself different stories about what happened to you, stories in which you had agency and persisted, then when you focus on purpose, you can just start doing things that you love, that feel intentional, that fill you up, and you are freed from the fact that you no longer have to try to become enough through pursuing purpose. Let me repeat that. You cannot become enough through pursuing purpose. Purpose is meant to be joyful. It's meant to be authentic and intentional. It's the way you want to spend the rest of your life. You don't want to have to rely on purpose to convince you you are already enough. Period. 
Happiness is meaning and purpose. Meaning is the stories you tell yourself about the past, and happy people tend to tell themselves stories of being a hero. If you can do that, you'll realize that you are already enough. And then when you look at your present and future and try to pursue purpose, it won't be anxiety-provoking. You won't get purpose anxiety because purpose doesn't have to fulfill that whole of enough. You've already tackled that. The point of purpose is to be intentional and do the things you want today that not only fill you up, but also eventually connect you with others and create a legacy. All right, as you guys know, I leave things running for a little bit of an after show just to catch what we talk about. Um, Love the show. I listen to, I think, almost every episode. Uh, Love your guys' interaction with each other. It is so you and so fun to listen to. Um, Thank you. And so far, I think the topics have been weighty in a good way. Um, So you guys have a lot of banter and you're funny, but you delve into deep, important stuff. And so I like that kind of mix of both. Um, and I just think it's it's appealing. I definitely, I don't listen to podcasts anymore and I've listened to almost every of your episodes. And I, I really don't listen to almost any podcasts anymore because I'm busy and I listen to my own and et cetera, so. That's like the best compliment ever, Jordan. Thank you. I've really I enjoyed them of- so far. They're good. I mean, I'm not saying that to be gratuitous. They're good. I, I like listening to them. Thank you. Yeah, I hope we're going to have, I think our next interview is going to be Thursday for Brandon. Actually, we're just going to talk to him that day. That's the recording day. But you would be a good one to have on that because I think um, it, it's pretty interesting. We're really looking to tell interesting stories about people who have since retired. And Brandon's life has taken yeah, probably a pretty big turn. Yeah. No, but and I think your life is cool, too, because you continue to work 25% time, correct? So I work about 10 to 15 hours a week on hospice stuff. But as you, like, I'm busy. Like, I'm, right, so I'm working on my second book, which is coming out January 2025. I'm about to sign a contract for my third book, which is a healthcare book, um, which is more of a passion project. I'm just going to go with a a really small publisher, but it's just a a book I want to write. I'm very excited about writing. Um, But between that and the podcast and you know, the other stuff between exercise and reading and family stuff, like life is busy, but I, I also take my sweet time though. Like I get up leisurely. I have my coffee. I stretch every morning. I exercise. Like I, my, I purposefully don't overfill. Um, but <laughs> it is, uh, it's, it's a super pleasure to be able to go to the gym for like two hours and not have any yeah. restrictions. Like I'm just going to walk around the track like aimlessly until I'm done listening to this song or album or whatever. It's uh, hmm. super oh, uh, nice. But the other point, which I didn't didn't really push on in the podcast, but I've actually delved into the just reckless spending, not recklessly thoughtful, but just reckless. And on some level, I've also decided that I need to understand both sides. Like, so reckless, no, I'm not taking half of my net worth and doing things with it, but we've done some, what I would say, uncomfortable level spending in the last year or two. And it's not easy, but on the other hand, like I said, I don't know if the accumulating made me any less anxious either. So for me, it's kind of an interesting, um, an interesting delve into the other side to see how it feels. Okay. Uncomfortable level spending 
What does that mean with regards to your net worth? Is this like 1% of your net worth, 10% of your net worth, or honestly doesn't really move the needle? Um, let me think here. Um, Cause uncomfortable can be like spending $20 on one drink when you go out to a bar. That's, that's ridiculous. Cause a whole bottle costs 20 bucks. So why would I spend that on one drink? Um, Jordan bought a Lamborghini. <laughs> if, I if so, I want to ride in it. <laughs> I'd say this year we're probably spending over 5% of our net worth. Wow. In one year. In one year, this tends to be because we're doing a house remodel. So that's a little bit atypical. Um, but then we just but then we just decided literally at the turn of a dime to buy a new car. Um, my daughter is going to do some ACT, SAT prep, which is going to cost many thousands of dollars. Uh, my son's going to have to retake some classes and we're paying for college this year. So this is new. Um, and he goes to U of I. But believe it or not, U of I, even when you live in Illinois, University of Illinois, is 40,000 plus a year. Yeah, it's more um, for engineering, right? Like, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's expensive for a state school. Um, yep. Yeah, and we're not, I mean, we still, and even that, we still make a little money, right? Because I still make a little money. My wife actually, the other thing is my wife is probably going to end work this year. Um, mm-hmm. So most of our income is going to go. But will that help with uh, college tuition or no? No, we won't get anything from Illinois. Okay. So, but it's, to me, like I said, it's, it's, and I'm not going to say it's comfortable because it definitely at some levels gives me some anxiety, but to me, I want to see what the other side feels like too. And I, I wonder, like, I've always saved so much for so long. I'm wondering if I can let go and spend and just accept it. Um, I'll tell you the stressful part for me. I don't know if this is the same for you, but I'm curious to hear your thought. So we did some crazy things. We bought the helicopter ride. Uh, but one thing we did is, it's a long story, but I could buy a Kickstarter experience to have a private concert with my favorite band. And it was $10,000. And so the really stressful thing about all these big purchases, like the part that I actually start sweating and gives me anxiety, is pressing after I've entered the credit card information, pressing the submit button <laughs> to actually buy it. And I'm, I'm like, huh. like, I remember doing it. I remember actually pressing it on all these different events. I bought the concert right over there at my desk. But after I do it, I feel good. Yeah. And um, it's it's pretty strange. Like the hard part is actually parting with that money. But then after I part with it, I'm fine with it. So I don't know. So I did something I've never done before in my life this year. We cashed out stock to buy something. And I've never done that before. I've never taken any investments. The only time I've ever sold stock was to buy other stock, right? I've never actually taken investments and cashed it out to buy something. But for our house remodel, my wife has gotten, you know, restricted um, stock from her company for years and years and years and years and years. And we finally decided to cash some of it out for our house remodel just because it was a good good source of cash. Um, I've never done that before in my life. 40, 50 years old. This is my first time ever actually cashing out to spend. And I think we did that same thing. We bought the Tesla and we cashed out a little bit too. And yeah, exact same story. We had never done it. That yeah. that stress, it's a little <laughs> bit of anxiety inducing too. I, yeah. I do think that is. I'm curious. Well, is that why? Yeah. Why do you think? I've got a theory on it, but I'm curious to hear what well, you have to say first. So again, I know for me, and this is this gets back a little to what I said, and I may be atypical in this. Money doesn't bring me happiness, but the fear about not having money brings me anxiety. 
So for me, a lot of the things we spend on doesn't really change my happiness set point at all. But there is a fear of running out. And so that's never, I'm never going to love spending money because it never actually does much for me. Like buying a new car is great, but doesn't really get me that excited. Um, taking a vacation is great, but a week after the vacation, my brain is so full of other things. I don't even remember it. Like I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person who will go to something beautiful, right? You go to the, like some beautiful part of nature and you're like, wow, this is beautiful. And like, I'll go and I'll be like, oh, that's beautiful. But two weeks later, it's like, you never did it. But that's me. I'm a little strange, I think, like that. And so that's why for me, things like cashing out stock, et cetera, are stressful because I don't really get joy out of what it buys most of the time. But I don't get joy out of many material things. So for me. What? That that leads to two questions. First of all, what does bring you joy? And second of all, uh have you ever taken a line of credit against your stocks, assuming they are after-tax holdings? Yeah. So what does bring me joy? So the things I spend almost all day doing, podcasting, writing, reading, exercising, hanging out with my family. I mean, my life, honestly, is full. 90% of what I do in a day is joyful. I mean, most everything I do, because I've gotten rid of everything else. So I just don't, I just got rid of everything. So, so Yes, I have taken a We did a long time ago when we were in our real estate buying phase. We bought a lake house in Wisconsin. And so we took a line of credit for like $100,000 and paid it off over a year. But that was also at a time when I was making lots of money. Um, so I didn't, and my wife was making lots of money. So we were, we were, we had so, so much income back then. I didn't care. Like I wasn't too worried about spending back then either because we had just huge amounts of income. Oh, does it give you anxiety to not have so much income? Um, that's a good question. So I, my income went down. I make now 10% of probably what I made at the height of, of working. So, but my wife still works. So the question is, is she, um, she, I think, like I said, is going to sunset her job possibly by the end of the year. Uh, so that will be interesting because then we'll be making you know, let's say we'll be making, let's say a third of our yearly costs or our yearly spend. If we actually control it, <laughs> if we control it, like we haven't been for the last two years, but if we decide to put some price controls down or some spending controls, I'll probably, and you know, I say I make a third, but then after taxes and after this and after that, it's probably even less than that. It'll be about a fourth. Um, so what's going to bring in the difference? Where's, where's the difference? Well, we'll probably have to sell stock. Plus we're going to have way more expenses because we, for instance, we're going to have to pay for health insurance. So 25 grand is going to go to health insurance that, and my daughter's going to eventually go to school. And whereas my son, I still consider $40,000 a year pretty cheap. If she doesn't go to Illinois, which I don't think she will, we could be paying 70 or 80,000 a year just for her to go to school. Um, so yeah, we've got lots of stuff coming up. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.